Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Michael McGee on his debut novel, Close to Home. Michael McGee is the fiction editor of The Tangerine and a graduate of the Creative Writing PhD programme at Queen's University Belfast. His writing has appeared in Winter Papers, The Stinging Fly, The Lifeboat and The 32, an anthology of Irish working class voices. And today we're going to be talking about Michael's debut novel, which is Close to Home. Michael, welcome to Little Atoms. How's it going, Neil? Thanks so much for having me. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) I think, well, I do think, I didn't really realise how much of a coming-of-age story it was until it was published. And I get, well, I say a coming-of-age story, it's probably more a a constable Roman than a a buildings Roman, or at least that's kind of the emotional journey, I guess, behind Sean's story. I would sort of see it, when I was writing it, the thing that I was really preoccupied with was the punch and the story of the punch. And as the book sort of went on, it became much more about Sean's way of being in the world and how that changes dependent on where he's situated at any given time. And so it had a lot to do then for me with work and with his Sean's relationship with work and also just his sort of precarious existence, I guess, and how he sort of navigates certain social structures that are sort of everywhere he goes and and that are sort of structure his life, you know? And so, and you're right. I mean, you're completely right that a lot of, I guess when you spend like five, six, seven years or whatever it is writing something, your idea of what the book is actually changes a lot over time, (laughs) Um, depending on what you're doing at any particular time in terms of like the redrafting process or writing and particular uh, angles that you're thinking about it from. So, I mean, this is probably a very long answer to a very short question, but um, I mean, this one of the things that I sort of realized whenever the book was published and whenever I sort of started sitting down to talk about it with people was that all the sort of previous iterations of the book, the sort of 
different drafts, the different versions of different sequences all sort of exist in your head as like one single thing. <laughs> so you almost have to remind yourself about what's in it and what's not, because I guess the final version of what the book is, is very different from what it was when you set out to do it. And also different from all the previous iterations of what it was. So it's all sorts of things, I guess, <laughs> but but also just the one thing that it's that it's been sold and packaged as now, which is the story about a young university graduate from a working class background who who gets into an argument one night and assaults a guy at a house party, you know? There's a very, very small blink if you miss it note in the credits at the beginning of the book that mentions that while the book is fictional, it's also based on, you know, your own life experience and growing up and people that you knew and that. So tell us about to what extent your own experiences fed into the book. Yeah, well the the first sort of iterate the first draft of the book was well it was a letter and I've spoken about this already publicly that you know when I started writing the book I I was a first year PhD student in creative writing at Queens. I just started and I was sort of struggling to find my way in or struggling to find a thing that I wanted to say, I guess. And a lot of the things I was sort of writing around that time just weren't quite hitting the mark. And there was a sort of reluctance in me, a sort of reluctance to to go in too far. And I sort of had a weird conception of what like a literary novel was. A literary novel had to be literary in my mind. And I didn't know if the world that I wanted to write about sort of qualified as that. And I guess I was trying too hard to write, which is any writer's biggest mistake. And so a friend of mine, Tom Moore, suggested, um, he's a writer and editor, was an editor at Sting and Fly at the time, the Dublin-based magazine. Um, he suggested I write a letter. And he sort of said, you know, sit down and start from any point in your life and go from there. And I did. And, and that letter just over a period of a couple of months got longer and longer and longer until one day. I realized that I had a full manuscript in my hand that was, you know, 200 odd pages of what was highly confessional, but vaguely narrative prose. And so the sort of foundation of the book, the sort of base was this sort of highly autobiographical material. And then the, the years following that was basically a process of trying to find a story. And and so a lot of what what began is this, I sort of was, I remember reading like Carlo Vakanosgaard at that time and and really appreciating his project and and admiring it a lot, but for me it didn't it didn't quite work for me. I sort of sh- struggled to handle the the non fictional elements and the autobiographical elements. I I couldn't quite get enough distance from them, and so fictionalizing seemed to be the appropriate mode. And so there was a whole process then of rewriting the book and and narrativizing and dramatizing and, and shaping it into something something that was you know sort of drawn from my own experiences but also sort of diverged a lot from it. And so it's hard to kind of, <laughs> it's hard to kind of gauge. I mean, I've sort of been asked what is and what isn't fiction in it. And in my mind, at this point, it's all fiction, just because by the very act of fictionalizing, you sort of, you bastardize the truth in all sorts of ways, or at least that's the kind of impulse behind it. At the same time, I don't even know how much at this point the memoir is. Um, if it had been a book of memoir, I don't even know how much of it you could say was actually true because it's all been produced, reproduced creatively, you know. I'm taking scenes from my life and I'm making them into drama and that immediately sort of undercuts them, you know. I guess that's always the question about what, what fiction is and what autofiction is and what memoir is. 
And I guess that gauge in that distance between myself and the material I was writing about was really important creatively and just also just sort of in order to make a book and um, to make it into this sort of coherent narrative and to find the right voice for Sean. I was going to ask you um, towards the end of the interview, what are the writers in the north are particularly uh, exciting at the moment would you recommend and you've just mentioned thomas morris and like, literally half an hour ago before we started this interview i just saw on twitter that he's got a new collection yes. coming yeah. out later in the year his last book of short stories was amazing um so sorry let's do that now who else is um who else is exciting you at the moment well I would be a fool if I didn't say Wendy Erskine. Um, I absolutely love Wendy's stories. Her second collection in particular is an absolute stonker. Um, and her both connections are really, really good. Um, I think what she's doing is just, she has a way of, she just she just has a real simplicity about her prose that, and quietness to it, I think, that really, that I admire a lot. Um, there's not, not a lot of song and dance about it, but it's quietly devastating in all sorts of ways. And she would probably be the one that's most aligned in terms of the sort of subject matter that she's, or the sort of place that she writes from, I guess. But her stories are just, and it's brilliant. She's really good because I think that there's a lot of diversity in her stories, even though they're all sort of set within a particular space. And I think a lot of that has to do with how she tells them, which is a conversation I seem to have a lot these days about, I guess, sort of boils down to form and content, but I'm less interested in what people are writing and I'm about how they rate it, and in terms of the high Wendy, Wendy's up there with the with the best of them. But there's all sorts of other really good writers that I like a lot. People like Lucy Caldwell and uh, Glenn Patterson and Robert McLean Wilson, who though hasn't published in a long time, wrote some good books back in the day. But there does seem to be like a bit of a, a bit of a boom in terms of the writing that's coming out of here at the moment. I think Louise. Well, I I sort of claim Louise Kennedy is being from the six counties, even though she's lived in Sligo for most of her life, but she did spend her childhood in, in the north. Um, I think she feels that this is this is her home as much as as much as anywhere. So um I think Trespasses is an absolute belter of a book. Tight as a drum. In a lot of ways a kind of traditional troubles novel, but it's just so beautifully constructed and paced and the story's just so tight in it that it's it's hard not to see it for as as just a, a powerful piece of art more than anything. And again, another good short story writer. But um, yeah, there's a good there's a good few knocking around, but them two in particular would be the ones that I would admire the most. I'd say. So Sean, your protagonist, um, he tells it's a first person narration. He tells we see the, the the story through his perspective, and you mentioned that. So the again, if you if one reads the the blurb of this book, it talks about you know the fact that uh, Sean basically in the novel assaults somebody at a party and. Wonderfully, you stop. Literally, that's the first thing that happens in the novel. So that's where we are introduced to him with that happening, and then the rest of the novel then acts as him. First of all, being punished for it, but also dealing with the ramifications of that. So tell us about how that punch is structured. I guess. I uh, so the the punch was actually well the first thing that I wrote, and it sort of remained the first thing. Uh, they had those opening lines have said the same from the very first draft. You know, there was nothing to it. I swung and hit him and he dropped the guard, came flying forward and pushed me. And I guess it goes back to like writing short stories. I spent a lot of time writing short stories, somewhat unsuccessfully, to be honest. Like I published a couple, but not a lot. But I always remember, I think it might have been Carver or someone like that, some American fella, maybe John Gardner, who, ta- who taught him. I always said to start in, in the midst of things, you know, in media res. 
And that always stuck in my head as a way of, you know, finding the way into a story. And I guess how that functions then for for close to home is that I guess you read that opening scene and, and then the, the scene is a follow and you I guess the reader then is forced to make various presumptions about who he is as a person, you know. And the rest of the book then sort of acts as a as a way of subverting those expectations about who he is and humanizing him in, in a way, I guess, but also showing how he, as I said before, moves through the world and the various obstacles that are in his way. Um, and I think that I'm always sort of uh, interested in stories about people who are trying to, trying to succeed in some way, you know, or trying to who have some aspiration, and I guess, or something that they're trying to move towards. I guess as someone who's had some degree of aspiration since they were since they were young and sort of took a long time to try and to work through those to get to that point um, of you know publishing or becoming a novelist or whatever it is, and that's kind of where the story came from. And I guess Sean, in, a, in many ways, his sort of story sort of parallel with my own, but it's focused on a very particular moment in his life, which is this this year where he's kind of caught between two different places in a lot of ways, you know, the world where he comes from, the world that he so, that socialized him, who made him in many ways the person he is, but also this other world that he's been introduced to and one that he feels drawn to in all sorts of ways, but that he, he distrusts, that makes him feel uncomfortable. And yet despite that, he sort of has a sense that that's kind of where he's supposed to be. And so that's the sort of tension in the novel. And, and I think all the way through the book, I kind of wanted people to feel that, you know, the feel that he was sort of caught and that it was almost like a process, not to sound very self-help about all this, but that he's trying to find himself, you know, but he doesn't quite know who he is in all sorts of ways or who he's supposed to be. And a lot of that has to do with class, you know. And I think like while I was sort of writing the book, I was I was studying for a PhD. So there was a critical component that came along with the creative writing PhD. And that critical component was like a sort of theoretical piece of research and i was reading a lot of stuff to do with sort of social mobility and and the effect it can have on the individual that's comfort that can arise from it you know and there is a there's this concept that bourdieu has of the cleft habitus um that's this discomfort one that arises when one sort of moves into a world that is unfamiliar to them it's kind of a bodily thing there's sort of physical discomfort but also a kind of psychological one and that you move into a world in which you don't understand the rules of the game and that can have everything to do with the humor the the way people talk the accent the cultural capital they carry and whatnot and that sort of concept of the cleft habitus was sort of always in the back of my head when i was thinking about sean and thinking about where he was at this particular moment in life and that aim came with its own sort of problems because i there was a time when sean the story of the novel was the story of this young guy sort of moving from one world into another and sort of assimilating into that world completely. And it just didn't quite work that I sort of had to almost zoom in and focus it more and lock into this sort of time frame where he's caught and he could go either way at any point. And that sort of feeds into the sort of overall precariousness or instability of his life anyway, in terms of his work and where he lives and relationships with the people around him that it was sort of always going for the feeling that the carpet could be pulled out from under him at any point, you know? And so these were all the sort of things that were sort of getting into how I saw Sean as a person. And so he could he could never really, like the gains he made in life had to be small, you know? They couldn't be 
you know, we couldn't get a short story published in a, in a magazine, you know, first time around, because that would then that would then assume that he had some kind of special gift, you know, as, as you sometimes get with these kind of books, you know, that the, the working class boy is also somehow a genius, um, a creative genius, you know, and that's sort of his redemption or his way out. It could never really be that simple. Just getting a job, even if it is just in a coffee shop or a bar, had the had to be imbued with some degree of significance, which is why even when he moves into the, the house share down in University Street and around South Belfast, that's a kind of a massive move for him in all sorts of ways, but it's also kind of a small game. So it's almost like little baby steps, you know? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Michael McGee, and we're talking about his debut novel, Close to Home. And Michael, we should say that the book itself is set in 2013, but we're recording this literally in the week where it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, and there's been a lot of commemoration of that through sort of official channels. And one thing the book looks at very closely is that Sean's generation is a generation that has grown up after the Troubles, but his parents' generation are the people that, you know, that were there at the end when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, the actual combatants and the victims. And basically, it seems, looking at them through Sean's eyes, that they never won anything. Nothing happened, basically. Those people fundamentally were screwed in in a certain way. Nothing really changed for them. Yeah, I mean, I think 
it is actually 10 years god i didn't actually really i thought it was yeah it is but um yeah i think that year was very significant for me it was important for me to set the book then because that was the year sort of following the uh, 2008 financial crash and that sort of changed the game for a lot of people particularly working class people particularly people that are from sean's world you know, he, he was the only person out of his group of friends to go to university. The rest of his friends were going on to do building trades. But in the time that he went and came back from university, his friends had lost their livelihoods and were sort of left stranded, unemployed or working in jobs that weren't very, didn't offer a lot in the way of uh, progression or indeed stability. Um, so a lot of people have left, have gone to Australia or, or wherever to, to work and also then you have this period and it's it is kind of interesting because i think the last 10 years has has seen if anything a deepening of of these uh social and economic disparities particularly whenever you start thinking about how you know it's been it's been 25 years um and yeah we're we're now being subjected to all sorts of uh all sorts of song and dance about what what it is and what it means. And that's not that detracts from the fact that the Good Friday Agreement was a massive achievement, and certainly grateful that it happened and glad that it that was what happened. And the violence ended, and well, we say violence ended, it it didn't actually. Violence continued. It just took on different forms for people in working class areas. But um, I guess if you're if you're sort of saying at least no one's being killed on the street every day, um, it's kind of a low bar to set in terms of what a society should be. But Sean's generation and I guess my generation who were born in and around the signing of the Good Friday Agreement were promised the world, really, you know, that we were going to have a massive economic boom, that there would be opportunities galore. And and for a section of society, that's certainly true. You know, there's statistics now that say that there are more millionaires in Belfast than there are anywhere across the water in Britain, outside of London and Aberdeen. And yet we have the highest rates of poverty and social deprivation across both these islands, I guess. Um, and so that sort of tells you a story in and of itself, that there are there's a whole generation of working class people who are sort of looking around and trying to figure out how their lives have been improved. And the reality is that in terms of the material conditions of them, they haven't. If anything, in the last year or two, they've, they've gotten worse. And I guess like that sort of um, complicates the narrative a bit, you know, but you probably... They don't talk about that enough, I don't think, on in the uh, establishment media. If anything, they sort of put down any civil unrest that occurs, and it often does occur around this time of the year, to uh, sectarianism or sort of bitterness or, you know, an upsurge in dissident sympathies. But in reality, people are just very angry about, <laughs> particularly young people, are sort of angry that they live in a state in which they've been constantly left behind. A very dysfunctional state, um, a state that only has ever been on its feet for what 14 of the 25 years that it's been that uh, power sharing has been a great like been a thing so it's very very hard for anybody to hear for who's from these places to to jump for joy whenever the uh joe biden's flew over to, to sort of put his rubber stamp of approval on on how things are going and there's also what she could probably and i guess like that's what the novel is also tapping into and, and and thinking about in terms of the generation of young people who are. I mean, the thing is as well is that when I say the violence didn't end, it sort of took on different forms. Is that they took on forms within communities and particularly how the state treated the communities that, that are left behind. That there's these sort of legacy issues that have never been addressed. There's massive uh, mental health issues across 
the north. Uh, we have the highest rate of suicide that you could imagine, particularly. And these sort of suicides are localized to areas that were disproportionately affected during the Troubles. So you have this sort of inherited trauma. Particular, I mean, this and this is the thing, I guess I'm, I'm probably going to go into this, but I guess it's, you know, most, the vast majority of the violence that happened during the Troubles happened in working class areas. They happened in West Belfast and Ardoin and the Strand and the Bogside and Derry, places like that. It's not to say that many people weren't indirectly affected by the conflict, they most certainly were, but the um, the people in the more affluent areas sort of got away scot-free anyway. I mean, they weren't the areas that were under occupation by British security forces, you know, and they didn't have to live daily with with all of the difficulties and violence that comes with that. And I guess that's the thing about the troubles and how they how they functioned was that not only did you have the killings and the shootings and the rats, you also had the day-to-day existence of living under what was essentially a military occupation in sort of very small, very tight working-class areas. You left your house, you got pushed up against the wall by a British army soldier, patted down, kicked and punched, called a Fenian bastard, sometimes got a gun put the back of your head or whatever. You're sort of constantly living in some degree of fear, you know, um, and that created a massive amount of anxiety and stress amongst people. It never really was helped in any way. I think we were sort of, I mean, this is a terrible statistic to throw out there, but I think something around half of the population of the north of Ireland suffers some form of PTSD and that PTSD is sort of manifesting in all sorts of ways in the domestic space and in the communal. And so there's generations of young people who have inherited that and you compound that with poverty and disenchantment and then free and almost unrestricted access to all sorts of drugs. Um, People then start to medicate themselves from a very young age and then that sort of cannonballs down to really bad forms of criminality, but also suicide, which is kind of one of the big problems that we have over here. I mean, it's one of the, another great statistic I'm going to throw at you here is that uh, more young people have committed suicide um, since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement than were killed during the whole course of the Troubles. And the vast majority of those young people are from, are, are young men um, from uh, working class backgrounds. So that's sort of, paints a picture in all sorts of ways so it's very very hard for for, um for sections of of uh, society over here to, to sort of say god wasn't it a great success um and it most certainly wasn't in a lot of ways you know in the long term anyway i was going to ask you something about you know how the um the, the financial crisis and the the property crisis is still sort of reverberating now i'm constantly seeing people talking about both in the south and in the north about you know how difficult the the property market is and rent at the rental market in in Ireland at the moment. And um, in thinking about that, I was writing down notes and I noticed that in the acknowledgements of the book, you um you mentioned that um it turns out that Bookfinders, a bookshop that features in the um in the novel, is actually a real place. So of course I looked it up and inevitably it turns out that it's it's closed and is being turned into flats. Yeah. It's actually been turned into a cafe Nero, which is one of the great tragedies <laughs> of, of many great tragedies. But um, that was, Bookfinders was like a haven. It was where we went. And I mean, this is the thing, you know, the city of Belfast is sort of a, a catching up process with the south. And that, like it's it's sort of, the north is like sort of on a, on a free fall. And it's sort of mirroring every sort of thing that happened 
in the south of Ireland maybe 20 years ago and, and you can sort of see it happening in front of you. Property prices are going up, rents going up, private development has like boomed all over the city centre. They're building things that nobody really needs. Um, massive influx of hotels, massive influx of or, um, office space and um, also kind of coffee franchises and all those kind of things. But Bookfinders was, I mean, Bookfinders survived the troubles, um, but couldn't survive um, privatization. <laughs> it was opened in the early 80s, I think. Mary was running that. Mary Denver was running Bookfinders for the best part of 30 years. And it was a place we went. Students, particularly creative writing students and English literature students um, from as far back as people like Heaney and Muldoon um, hung around in there, drinking uh, bottles of wine, smoking cigarettes, and singing songs, and having a merry old time. And then, yeah, the building then was sold, and Mary was evicted. Essentially, you know, she was told they were going to redevelop, and they did. And that was a few years ago. Now it, it recently got turned into a cafe, and probably within the last year, which was sad. And I think it's left like a massive hole, actually, in the sort of in the Belfast literary scene. Is in that like that was the kind of centre around which. We all gravitated, and now there is no centre. You know, there, there's a few bars and stuff, and I guess there's there's also still no alibis where that is kind of the place now where I go and meet people. But Bookfinders was its own special kind of place, you know, and it's sort of it's just such a shame because it did outlast just about everything else until it didn't. So to finish it off, Michael, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure, I'll just read from the uh, I'll just read from the start now. This is the first chapter. There was nothing to it. I swung and hit him and he dropped. A girl came flying forward and pushed me. What'd you do that for? The lad was lying there and I was standing over him and there were people all around me making noise. By the time I got away from the tussle, two Land Rovers had pulled up. A jaded looking peeler with a receding hairline came towards me. Is that blood? He said, pointing to a stain on my shirt that could have been anything. He took my name and number and told me he would be in touch. I held my hands up and said that was no problem. He came at me, I said. I didn't know what to do. At the top of the street, the lad was put on a stretcher, and the stretcher was heaved into the back of an ambulance. I think it's best you make your way home, the peeler said. I decided he was a good peeler, a helpful peeler. We'll be in touch, he said, and I thanked him. Thanks very much, I said. Back at the flat, Ryan had his phone in his face and was pacing up and down the living room, looking for a party but it was five o'clock in the morning and the birds were out. He pulled the blinds closed as if that would help and nearly took the window with him, the brightness. I grabbed the purple throw my man had given us as a moving in present and pulled it over my head. I lay with my head on the pillow and stirred through the space between the empty bottles. Ryan checked the fridge, the cupboard next to the fridge. He lifted a can from the counter and gave it a shake. I give up, I said. Give up? You have a dumb fuck off. I'm going to bed. Fuck's sake, Sean, don't leave me hanging here. I'm not leaving you anywhere. I'm in the next room. Bouncing in my bed, sure. We'll watch a film. We need to stop doing this. Doing what? Come on. The window above the bed was open, and the breeze wafted through cold. I stripped down to my boxers and climbed under the covers, but stayed on the outside so I could creep into my own bed as soon as Rand passed out. The wall was black with mould, and it made the room smell damp. There were clothes all over the place. Takeaway cartons. Cups and glasses and empty cans. Ryan smoked too much weed. That's what it was. I made him lazy. I made him not give a bollocks. I said to him, You smoke too much of that shit. And took the spliff off him. He didn't care. 
he was sinking into it nicely. And he had his favourite film on, The Shawshank Redemption. He made me watch it every time we ended up like this. It gave him hope. Watch this, he said. It was that scene he loved. The one where Andy Dufresne arrives at the penitentiary and all the inmates are going mad, screaming at him, calling him and the rest of the newcomers fresh fish. I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. That was Ryan's favourite line. He thought it was brilliant. I did too. Never judge a book by its cover. That's what that means. Never judge anybody. Because you never know. The next morning, or later that morning, whatever way you want to put it, somebody was at the door. I rolled onto my side and tried to go back to sleep. But Ryan was up. He was shaking me. And he was like, that doesn't sound good. I sat up on the edge of the bed. It was better to do these things in stages and watched Ryan lean with his ear against the door. Sounds like there's a few of them, he said. Men? Why? Men? I looked out the window and saw a car parked up at the front of the block. The driver's side door was open. I heard a radio. Not the kind that played music. The other one. It's not the peelers, Ryan said. How do you know? Because they would have shouted. They always shout. The knocking stopped. Footsteps echoed out the hall and were gone. The living room was a state. There were fag butts everywhere. A spilled drink. Some dirty bastard had been flicking ice in the bottle caps and the bottle caps had fallen on the floor. I brushed and mopped and got rid of the empties. Then I sat for a minute and looked out the window. We had a good view. The flat was on the fourth floor so we could see right over the rooftops the casement park and the mountain. You can't miss the mountain. It's everywhere you go. Every street and road in West Belfast. You can't get away from it. Whoever's writing those messages up there knows fine rightly as well. They couldn't have picked a better spot. Today, it was a massive tricolour. And underneath it, they had written the words, End internment. Who do you think it was? Ryan said. Dunno. Dissidents? Why would dissidents be calling here? I thought you meant the mountain. Ryan looked out the window. That's not dissidents, you rocket. Is it then? Fuck knows. Could be anyone, he said. Then he clapped his hands. It's the Illuminati. The Illuminati have infiltrated the Ra. He opened the fridge and stared at the empty shelves. The acne on his back was getting worse. The pimples had gone purple and bubbled under the skin. Six months in the gym will do that. And the steroids he'd been jacked into his arse cheek every other day. You could see it in his face. The puffiness. The jacked up redness around his neck and shoulders. We need food, he said. Have you cash? Do the fuck? Spunked everything last night. Aye, me too. I boiled the kettle and brought it with me into the bathroom. Filled the sink with hot water and topped it up with cold. The boiler was broke. There was no heat in the radiators, no hot water. And it wasn't like we had to phone the landlord and ask him to sort it out. He went bankrupt and did a runner to Spain, leaving a load of properties to be repossessed. That's why we didn't answer the door that morning. It could have been someone looking to turf us out. I started on my hair giving it a good go with shampoo. I used a cup to rinse the suds and got the splashing my balls and torso. Then I sat on the edge of the bath and looked at my hand. The knuckles weren't swollen and my fingers were all intact. I made a fist and stared at it. Then at my arm, right up to the shoulder, where the thin lines of my tribal tattoo were so black they looked blue. I need to get out of this, I thought. I didn't know what this was. So I've been talking to Michael McGee. We've been talking about his debut novel, Close to Home, which is out now in the UK from Hamish Hamilton. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much, Neil. It was a pleasure. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.